This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Getting players to try new games. The Kong Mountains. Criminology Gaming. And Casper Hauser. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. Today we rip the cellophane off an all-request episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and as with all all requests, such requests begin in the friendly confines of the gaming hut, benevolently gazed at by Peter Frampton, wafted with the smell of Doritos, and answering a question from Patreon backer Joshua Trowbridge, who says... I'm absolutely in love with Cthulhu Confidential. Great opener, Joshua. Love that. (laughs) Love your, love your confidence here. The problem is I have three playgroups and they're all hardcore D and D types with little enthusiasm for anything else. I've gotten both my wife and my roommate to play sessions with me and they both had a lot of fun. But despite that, interest from the rest seems lukewarm at best. What do you guys do to fire up players to at least try something new? Robin, I think this is in the sort of um, uh, someone who like calls in and says, hey, Anthony Bourdain, how do you get tables at restaurants? And it's like, I'm Anthony Bourdain. That's not really a problem for me. Um, is that right. we're, we're not going to literally answer that question because, of course, we both of us cheat. Right. Yes, by having uh, culled and selected and hand-shaped our playgroups over decades to be the best darn playgroup there can be. And that goes both ways, too, right? That there are members of my group who uh, will sign on for things that they wouldn't ordinarily in another situation because they know I have to playtest something. So, for example, not everybody in the current group is as enthusiastic about horror as everybody else in the group. Ah. Uh, There are people who would not necessarily uh, choose that, but they uh, patiently forbear... Uh, knowing that whatever it is that I'm working on, I have to uh, playtest, and they and and that is useful too because as a playtester, you don't actually want to have an ideal group that's already 100% signed on. You need to right. know what advice to give to adjust for groups that you know where one person is you know patiently forbearing the horror because they're waiting for the next game to come around where they, they get to hit things or have drama or whatever. Right. In, in a way, if you're playtesting a game about uh, Robert W. Chambers or H.P. Lovecraft, you want at least some of your audience to be kind of skeptical and dubious so that you can get that large uh, lobe of the gaming audience for whom those are not uh, holy words like they are for us. Right. So uh, let's not take this perennial question literally. And I think we have actually answered this before on the podcast, but it is a perennial question, and it's not like CNN talks about ISIS once and And never touches the subject again. And this problem is as bad as ISIS. Uh, (laughs) All right. Never mind. (laughs) I was going to do chocolate chip cookies, but sure, you do ISIS. That works. (laughs) Sure. Um, So, uh, the question I I think we need to to deliteralize it and ask ourselves, how do you convince resistant players to play your new cool thing 
And one of the reasons that this is a perennial question is that it is to some degree unsolvable. Mm -hmm. And there are uh, people who just like the one thing that they, you know, they're uh, by definition probably as players rather than a GM, they are less committed to the activity of role playing in general. And certainly in terms of there being people who are uh, super into D&D, there's a chunk of those folks who their hobby is not role playing. Their hobby is D&D. Right. And so as soon as you propose something that doesn't have plus two swords and alignments and uh, uh, level increases. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, sorry, they're out. What they really like is D&D. They went to all the trouble to uh, learn D&D and anything else uh, just seems weird to them. Why would you ever play another game? Because those other games, by definition, are, are not D&D, right? They're not D&D. Yeah, it's a, they're a terrible game of D&D in many cases. Yes, uh, everything that isn't, well, some things that are uh, not D&D are, are pretty good games of D&D, job. right? Yes, your 13th ages, right? Yeah. Your Pathfinder. But yes, the, the larger question is, how do you get your, your D&D core uh, players to at least sniff around the edges of your Knights Black Agents, your Calls of Cthulhu, your uh, hipster indie games with the fancy mustaches and the artisanal mustards? Um, how do you how do you get that to happen? And I think that really there has to be two ways. Um, either there has to be a reciprocity, a quid pro quo, where your D&D group really, 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 really wants to play some kind of D&D or some specific scenario that you don't want. Like maybe they all want to go to Dark Sun or maybe they all really want to play an evil party and go around and just uh, massacre everybody. Or maybe they really want to do the the one rule system that you don't uh, like and you don't want to have to learn and, and DM for them, uh, whatever it happens to be. But, and so you'll like, all right, we'll do that for, uh, four months or six months or whatever a campaign is in your, in your time space. But you have to then play nice and at least try another game in four months or six months. And so a little quid pro quo. The other way, of course, is recruit a second game group. I mean, Joshua has three play groups and he so far has not yet struck the elusive not D and D play group. But I mean, a man with three play groups is not that far from having four play groups in my experience. Right. Um, but it, it is, it suggests the depth of the challenge because, yeah. uh, Cthulhu Confidential requires one player. Right. And, <laughs> and I, so, I think that the Cthulhu Confidential was merely superbly deployed opening gambit, uh, right. because he's got his wife and his roommate who both had a lot of fun with Cthulhu Confidential. His Cthulhu Confidential problems are solved, but I sense that Joshua would also like to play multiplayer games with other people that are not D&D. Right. Maybe run a, a third person through Cthulhu Confidential and then have them all play Trail of, Con of uh, Cthulhu. Uh, Trail of Confidential would be a, a totally different that game. That would be. It'd be kind of fun, though. Yes. Um, now, uh, you've touched on an important thing, which is that D&D uh, &D in particular is designed to be a lot of fun to play over a long haul and that you invest in your characters and you want to see them undergo that progression from level to level to level to level. And you want to keep going with that. You've invested all this, you know, you've put an investment in your characters and want to keep seeing that pay off. But what it isn't and what players may not be quite realizing is it's not necessarily as much fun to GM for as long as the players want you to GM for that. Yes. So, uh, maybe again uh, an outbreak of uh, actual frank talk where you say you know what i'm starting to burn out on dnd i know you guys all love it because guess what i have three groups of you <laughs> i'm running dnd for all of you so but i i need a break to uh recharge my uh, uh batteries and you know uh, maybe if one of you wants to take over running for all three groups i'll play in one of your groups or you can indulge me a little you could throw me a bone and uh help me recharge my uh, GMing batteries by running something else cool so that you could let them know that this is the exchange of, of labor. And I think players can sometimes forget how much work goes into uh, GMing and how much of a drain it is. And you can sort of let them know that, you know, you need to have your gaming fun button punched as well. Uh, so you could tell them that. Uh, and then once you've allowed them to realize that, you could also start to bring in elements of the games that you want to play with them uh, and try and bring them along. So you can do, you know, what used to happen a lot in, in 70s and 80s TV. You could have a, a backdoor pilot as right. part of your game where you uh, run 
the uh, encounter with the, you know, your D&D characters go to Innsmouth. Well, they have that in Pathfinder. They literally have a Pathfinder adventure where you go to Nearest Dam at Innsmouth. And, you know, they have a, a lovely uh, Lovecraftian stuff for Pathfinder. And, of course, D20 Call of Cthulhu just sitting there, just sitting there looking pretty. Yep. And, and you could do that for, you know, lots of other games. You could, uh, you know, have an Old Westy sort of uh, adventure if you want to run a, an Old West game or, or whatever it is. You could sort of introduce them to what is fun about this other style. So for the length of a, a D&D adventure, they can be involved in an investigation that they don't have to know that you're using the gumshoe rule structure or the gumshoe scenario structure, really, under the hood to create a series of scenes with core clues that lead them to a conclusion and then a moral dilemma and something to fight at the end. Uh, and if you get them interested in that and then solving a mystery as D&D players or D&D characters, then you can go, hey, what if you were people in the 30s solving that mystery? So you can uh, sort of lead them into what's uh, uh, fun about this other style that you want to approach through the medium of D&D. Another possibility is that um, in the same sort of way, there's a lot of different things within D&D and that maybe you move one of your play groups over from regular D&D to Ravenloft. And then that player group can move over into uh, nice black agents or into another vampire game because they're sort of moving out of that central area of, you know, straight up owl bears and plus two swords. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that lovely area, but with three play groups, it also should not be impossible to sort of allow for a little sorting where the players who are most hardcore are, you know, they're in, you know, group A, the players who are pretty hardcore are in group B, and the players who might take a flyer on something can all go to the third group, and then that group may be the group that you can flip over time. Because, again, you're never going to argue someone out of liking Dungeons & Dragons, first of all, because Dungeons & Dragons is great, and second of all, because it's like arguing someone out of liking pizza or, you know, whatever their favorite uh, flavor of ice cream is. You know, you're... Pizza is a powerful argument. Yes. No matter how much you say but butter pecan is delicious someone's gonna say but chocolate is great and i love chocolate and i've eaten chocolate literally every time i've gone to the ice cream store and the only bad thing that's happened is sometimes i got chocolate and so you you find i can see where it's hard to get people out of that uh pleasure group and again you know it, it maybe it's like uh adventurous eaters if you don't catch them young it can be a job of work to to get them to move uh once they're adults um with, with food at least there are whole industries designed to make you feel bad that you haven't gone to the Thai place but we don't want to have that in gaming we certainly don't want people to you know make you feel bad that you haven't played dogs in the vineyard or whatever right and what you can also do is knowing what the different players in your groups enjoy, pitch to them an experience that is like that thing. So you know the particular player who uh, loves playing the dwarf who hits things with a hammer. So you say, well, you know, if, if you play this modern spy game, you can be, you know, the super jacked up uh, guy who's loaded with guns who, uh, you know, when the vampires pop out at him in Berlin, he's uh, got uh, 17 different grenades and he's ready to go. And the uh, person who plays the, uh, the wizard is like, well, you can play a character who has uh, discovered the secrets of uh, vampiric blood magic and is trying to uh, make it work for humans. And the character who enjoys uh, playing the uh, the ranger, it's like you could be the, the rugged eco-warrior who uh, uh, comes to, to help the spies uh, deal with the vampires who are, of course, trying to suck the uh, essence out of the forest because that's uh, what these particular vampires do. So you can uh, look at the things that the players you know are excited by in the D&D environment and then help them with the mental hurdle of translating to, oh, you know, the sort of fun that you have in D&D? Well, here's how it would be refreshingly different, yet still the same kind of fun exactly as <laughs> in uh, your D&D game. <laughs> Just like, except entirely different. Yeah. Um, that's that's what you want. And I, I, I suppose the, the, the sort of the other side of that, although this may be, you know, the wrong solution for Joshua is, you know, D20 did produce a bunch of different 
settings and versions of things. And I don't, he doesn't say if the players enjoy the rules or if they enjoy the setting or if they enjoy the beautiful blend of rules and setting. But if they like one more than the other, um, shift the one that they don't care about as much. So if they really like the rules, maybe move into a D20 modern or another kind of a D20 game and then slight and then uh, slowly move into uh, a, uh, a less kludgy modern uh, day game engine. But if they like the setting, maybe move to 13th age and then to uh, Ars Magica or maybe move over to Shadowrun because again, you've got elves and orcs and dwarves and magic, except also with computers and who doesn't love that? Uh, yeah. So it's just a matter of if there's any way of capturing them at all, uh, of allowing them to uh, envision the new fun they'll be having because they're currently busy envisioning the fun they have been having already. And so you just have to help them picture what will be going on in this new game that they'll really like. So uh, pitch it in terms of who they'll be playing and what they'll be doing, which is a way that you pitch any uh, role-playing uh, game experience to uh, to just about anybody. So I think, Ken, we actually answered this perennial question somewhat differently than the last time we tackled it and having done so can proudly strive through this upcoming commercial into whatever lies beyond Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh... The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The bloom of the compass rose and the pulchritudinous curve of the Mercator projection tell us that we've once more entered the hut that knows where all of the other huts are in relationship to one another. It's the cartography hut, the hut that is the special friend of our sponsor's pro-fantasy software. And... This time around, Patreon backer Josh Mannon would like to know about the disappearance of the Kong Mountains. The Kong Mountains, of course, we all know, uh, are in the uh, middle of deepest Africa. Uh, they were discovered in 1798, uh, but they only lasted until uh, around the 1880s. Uh, they were uh, connected to the Mountains of the Moon, which also uh, are no longer found on maps. And they were identified by the Scottish explorer Mungo Park, who is not to be confused with the band Mungo Jerry of In the Summertime fame, or not to be confused with Algonquin Park of Wilderness fame. Or with uh, the Australian horror film Mungo Lake. Right. Which is actually Lake Mungo, but you know what I get. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, Mungo Park led a lot of people to put the Kong Mountains on a map, and they've uh, they mostly went away, as I said, in the 1880s, but every so often they pop up again. There was a atlas published in 1995 where the Kong Mountains returned. So, Ken, take us into the life of Mungo Park and uh, the thing that caused the Kong Mountains to briefly appear. All right. Mungo Park is, I think, getting a bad rap in all of this. Mungo Park is a Scottish doctor who uh, hated the hell out of living in um, uh, London. And so he decided to go literally anywhere. He went to Sumatra. He went to a bunch of places. He was hanging around the African Association and said, hey, if anyone has anywhere with sunlight in it that I could go, that would be awesome. And so they sent him off to find the course of the Niger River in Africa. And, and back in those days, uh, you went to the Niger River from Senegal because 
that's where they knew where it was, was just to the west of Senegal. They didn't know all the rest of it, hence the need for Mungo Park et al. to explore it. So on his first trip, he is wandering around. Uh, he is near Bamako in the modern country of Mali and looks south and says, ah, mountains, writes that down and goes on with his life. Now, those mountains are what we know as the Nimba Massif, which go sort of from uh, Ivory Coast through Guinea and into Liberia. Um, they're not that high. They're about a mile high, give or take, maybe 6,000 feet on a good day. But, you know, you can see them from the basically flat nothing that is the Niger uh, or the Niger uh, Valley. So uh, it gets to a cartographer named... James Rennell, uh, who is having a slap fight with a bunch of other people about the course of the Niger River. And his reputation as a cartographer is uh, dependent on which direction the Niger River flows. Does it flow west or does it flow east? And Mungo Park says, oh, hey, look at that. It flows east. And everyone else was saying, no, it flows west, because if it flows east, there's literally nowhere for it to go. It would just go into the middle of Africa and disappear. And uh, James Rennell discovers that, hey, Mungo Park found mountains that if they went all the way across West Africa would explain why the Niger River flows the direction that A, Mungo Park says it does, B, that it actually flows in real life, and C, that those jerks who hate me say it doesn't flow. So he takes reports of mountains, and it's important to know that um, the lovely and talented uh, Renal and the lovely and talented Mungo Park do not make these mountains up. They go back at least to the reports of a guy named uh, Leo Africanus, who was a uh, converted Muslim uh, who had visited Timbuktu and got captured in Tunis and uh, became sort of a buddy of the Pope and was set up to write a geography of Africa on the basis of one trip to Timbuktu and sort of, you know, uh, assemble it from a, a, a gallimaufry of sources and said, ah, mountains probably. And so when was uh, Leo Africanus uh, running around uh, writing things down? Uh, he was running around first, then he was writing things down, which was part of the problem. And he was writing things down in the early 16th century in Rome, uh, where he was uh, far away from uh, not just Africa, but one assumes anyone else who had been to Timbuktu. So he put these mountains down in his book, and they get put onto a bunch of maps. Uh, they've been on maps uh, even earlier than Leo Africanus. Uh, Mercator has them on his world map. Uh, Volzi Mueller has them on his world map. Uh, people uh, liked this sort of symmetrical notion that there were chains of mountains that ran around the world in a nice straight line. Uh, because the world is is thought of as a perfect sphere and all of its uh, uh, this is why people believed in Australia before that was disproven was the notion that there was an equal amount of land north and south of the equator. And if you've got like a ring of mountains around the whole world, that's the, the Midgard serpent. Exactly. It could be. Um, uh, so it shows up on a bunch of maps until a French cartographer around uh, 1600 or so says, no, we're, we're not going to start putting maps, uh, mountains on maps that we've never heard of. And by the 1690s, the mountains have completely vanished from uh, cartography. And it became the done thing to not put the mountains on your map because that showed that you were scientific and they weren't just reading a bunch of uh, medieval nonsense about mountains. So these mountains are very determined, despite their non-existence, to exist. Exactly. And the efforts of sterling cartographers, uh, generation after generation, are required to prevent them from existing. Right. It takes a great deal of effort. It took three different explorers went through the non-existent mountains and said, um, yeah, it seems kind of mountainy where I am. Um, uh, maybe this is the Kong mountains that I hear about. Uh, the word Kong, by the way, no one can agree on where it comes from. Uh, the closest that I have come to is the notion that Konko in, uh, the Bambara language meant hills. And so, if Mungo Park had said, what is that, pointing at the mountains, someone could have said, Konko, it's a bunch of hills. They also could have been talking about the town of Kong, which Mungo Park, as far as we know, didn't know existed, which was also sort of in the direction he would have been pointing. And someone would have said, oh, past those hills, that's Kong. But they didn't say, past those hills, that's Kong. They probably said something in Bambara ending in Kong. And he said, oh, Kong. All right, that's the name of the mountains. So Kong is a 
town and at that point was the capital of a fairly thriving little commercial empire in what's now the northwestern Ivory Coast and is also where, coincidentally, once people figured out where Kong was supposed to be, they started drawing those mountains because, hey, someone says Kong is up there. We know Kong is mountains. Problem solved. No one then asks the next question of, so is it more of a flat towny kind of an area <laughs> or is it a bunch of skyscraping mountain peaks? Uh, Sir Francis Burton was all in on it being giant mountains and he was very salty to people who said that they weren't giant mountains because he'd been to in the entirely other end of Africa and he knew what mountains looked like. Right. So what are we to make of the fact that there are mountains that keep wanting to exist? Is this a sort of a tectonic relationship between two alternate earths where one of them has the mountains and one of them doesn't and uh, periodically the desire for the mountains to exist in both planes sort of uh, affects people's minds and they keep making these series of uh, seemingly explicable mistakes that nonetheless lead to uh, these mountains continuing even in 1995 they wanted to come back uh, and does is this a a portent of of disaster if we all start to believe in the mountains again uh, does that show us that we're being overridden by ultra terrestrials well in fairness the 100 odd years when the mountains were definitely there were not a good 100 odd years for west africa in that that was the 100 odd years when uh, a bunch of europeans came and you know, uh, yanked off several million people to be enslaved in the Caribbean and also conquered their countries and shot everybody. So the mountains are not good luck to West Africans. And one of the reasons that they wanted mountains to be there, they being Europe, they being cartographers who were being paid by exploration societies, who were being paid by people who wanted to find stuff in the mountains, was that everyone knew that you can't have gold without mountains. Everyone knew that there was plentiful gold in West Africa. So if you could find the source of the gold up in those mountains, you wouldn't have to go dicker with the people who owned the, the water that it washed out in alluvially. You could go up and drill it out of the mountains like a proper European should. So there was a great, uh, what am I going to say? A commercial interest as well as a cartographic interest in putting mountains where there weren't mountains. So if you look at it as sort of like the mountains of madness, which are supposedly 40,000 feet high and in the middle of Antarctica, but only appeared for a couple of years in the 1930s and then went away. There's also any number of islands, which we could get into, uh, that show up and then disappear, uh, depending on whether or not you're there. Bouvet Island, which is on maps today for a long time, was an island that everyone said, no, that's an imaginary island. doesn't exist. So I think we're definitely looking at at least two parallel Earths that are floating over, and one of them may be the creepy ultra-terrestrial Earth. And the coincidence of names between Kong and Kong and Kong, if you know what I mean, is probably its way of signaling that to us. Right. And also, if you are the ghost of a mountain and, and you have a baleful intent toward mankind, as we know mountains do, yeah, what you want to do is lure people onto you to die. Uh, and Everest is, is doing this. Uh, even as we speak, right. to more and more people every year. And it's like, oh, I'm just all comfy, cozy. People come up me all the time. Don't worry. And it's, you know, continuing to murder people and eat them. It turns out that Mount Everest is terrifying. Yes. Yeah. So if you uh, are a mountain that wants to eat people, uh, among the things you do is make mountain hearing seem like a appealing hobby. Another thing you do, of course, is spread rumors that there is, is gold in you. Um, and so this brings us to, you know, if we want to, uh, move it away from Earth into a fantasy world, you could definitely have the uh, the mountains uh, over there that are sentient that are spreading all sorts of rumors that uh, I'm full of dungeons. Uh, I'm full of gold and treasure and magic items. Come over. And if the right adventurers don't show up, the ones that don't taste right or uh, just, uh, you know, don't have enough soul uh, bits or, you know, seem otherwise unappetizing, then the mountains aren't there. Only the people that the mountain really wants to eat are the ones who, who see it. And there may be, uh, you know, two sets of maps. One has the mountain on it. The other doesn't. And people say, oh, no, those mountains don't exist. That was just a cartographic error uh, by Zeus the elf 200 years ago. And, uh, <laughs> don't sweat that. And, and then other people, well, no, no. If the right people go to the mountains, the mountains are there. And uh, you're obviously the right people. So that can give you a whole uh, a reason why, hey, these Dungeons are extremely dangerous, of course, but we're the special adventurers who can find them. And that means that, you know, all these other punks in town who want to find a dungeon to loot 
they're not going to be able to find the place, but we're going to be able to find a place. And yeah, sure, the legends say that the uh, mountains only allow the people in it that it's going to devour, but we know we're the exceptions. And so uh, uh, we're, uh, we're doing pretty well here. Or conversely, you could have a uh, swindle to uh, harken back to uh, a previous episode where, you know, there's just rumors of mountains full of gold uh, that the uh, guides will tell you all about. And then uh, once you get there, there's some uh, terrible surprise waiting for you. The, uh, the guides uh, try to uh, enslave you or throw you into a volcano pit to their uh, uh, hungry volcano god or uh, just uh, strip you of your goods and, uh, and send you on your way. And so there can be all sorts of uh, interesting plot lines around whether uh, in a, you know, a pre-satellite world, a given geographical feature exists or not. The other thing, uh, slightly more prosaically, but also pretty interestingly, I think that uh, the Kong Mountains uh, or mountains like them can do is that they can show up and as you're, you know, going into the interior of Africa for for whatever reason, uh, perhaps you're pursuing vampires. I can't be I'm not the boss of you. Uh, you might uh find yourself in a increasingly hilly area and the, your your compasses aren't working gps is giving you weird answers you these are these aren't hills these are freaking mountains i mean they're not mountain mountains but they're still mountains and then you come down and you're in a parallel earth you're in a different earth whose differences can be only different mountain chains a couple of islands a few other tectonic anomalies but everything else is you know whatever you want it to have been um uh you know the the stuarts retained the the throne of britain or whatever your your big alternate is or it can be straight up the earth where the ultra terrestrials come from and you're in basically sort of a modern day version of ravenloft because you're in this a dark realm where all the, the creepy, horrible stuff is true. You're sort of Cthulhu city type of a universe where, yeah, no, everything bad is happening here. That's why we're trying to go to your universe and haunt it is because we need to let off steam. And basically the mountains of Kong are like a giant radiator fin sticking up into uh, the regular earth and, and sort of blowing off excess supernatural evil so that our earth doesn't uh, completely implode. Right. And medium prosaically, you could just be a spatial anomaly. So the mountains that people sometimes see in the heart of Africa actually turn out to be in Transylvania. And you've just accidentally stepped through a uh, portal uh, where there, there's a, a glitch in the uh, spatial energy and you've just find yourself, you've teleported uh, to vampire headquarters. And, uh, you know, sometimes people can look over and see what they think obviously is part of where they are in Africa, but in fact is uh, uh, Eastern Europe. And so you can suddenly uh, be very inconvenient as uh, someone running away from vampires to suddenly find yourself uh, in the deepest, darkest Romania. There was a there was a mythical mountain that was supposed to exist in the middle of uh, the American Great Plains that shows up on a number of maps as well. It's sort of a pyramidal mountain, like a mountain of mountains, sort of the American version of Mount Meru, I suppose. And that, you know was there until it wasn't there. And then they replaced it with the great American desert, which also wasn't there. But the notion that, that you might've gone into Africa, you go up into the mountains of Kong, you come out in uh, America with a different mountain. Uh, the mountain might move around. It might be like Lang, which uh, famously goes from Afghanistan to Antarctica to Tibet to who knows where. And so maybe the mountains of Kong are also the mountains of Lang. And it's just that, uh, Lovecraft, being a big old jerk, didn't want Lang to be in Africa. He wanted to be in fancy pants land. Uh, uh, but there's Lang in Africa. There's Lang in Wyoming. There's Lang everywhere because Lang is a state of mind as well as a state of oxygen deprivation. The real Lang was in our hearts all along. It was the friends we met along the way and ate. Well, I think if we head through this commercial that we'll definitely not find mountains on the other side. That's good because um, I only have uh, I have very little in the in the way of oxygen gear and high altitude gear. So we shall move through on the square and on the level.
Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the northern hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come. But the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure game book in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Help this lost prince of a podcast survive, as do such Patreon backers as... Ariel Celeste! Derek Heimforth! Fred Kish! John Kingdon! And Lewis R. Evans! It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Adam Grotjan asks Ken and Robin, as the dutiful husband of a tragically Minnesotan criminal justice professor, I am honor-bound to ask a difficult question of the two maestros in investigative gaming on her behalf. And I know that we praised Joshua Trowbridge's question earlier, but oh my God, does Adam bring it on the questioning? <laughs> Yes, it's it's not only an excellent question, but it's a connubial duty. It's a connubial duty, plus it involves the threat of legal action if we don't respond. So I yes, really exactly. like this. Does there or could there exist a role-playing game that simulates modern criminological procedures and practices in such a way that it could be used as a teaching aid? And I'm going to say, with the possible exception of GURPS Cops, which was written by a real-life uh, public defender, Lisa Steele, the answer is probably not. But it could. And what's your response? Right. So I think what we have to envision here is a situation in which we are approached by, say, I don't know, the Minnesota Department of Justice. And they say, <laughs> we have this project where we would like you to develop a role playing game as a teaching aid. Um, because and this is not unheard of. Uh, I worked for a little while on a, a web based video game, for example, that was supposed that was sponsored by a department of like British transport or something. And the whole idea was to uh, inculcate in young kids, the idea of having to look both ways before they cross the street. And so what happens when you're engaged to work on something with a pedagogical focus is that you sit down and talk to the client. And the first step you have to uh, undergo is what are the things that you want to teach with this game? And so we would have to envision a meeting where you and I are sitting down across from this person who's inexplicably received funding for this project. <laughs> well, it is Minnesota. They said it was tragically Minnesotan. I think exactly. that there could be nothing more tragically Minnesotan than to aim public funding at this project. There's been a tragic funding accident. And <laughs> right. We're, we're the recipients. Right. And so then we would have to uh, learn from the client what exactly about criminological procedures do you want to teach? And then after that, I think we can probably uh, uh, kind of uh, yoke a whole bunch of gumshoe uh, into that. Right. Because uh, what you would want from a, a pedagogical role-playing game is, first of all, is that you want it to be as simple as possible and still do the job because you don't want to uh, burn up all of the user's learning energy, learning your rule system and learning how to play the game. You want the game to melt away out of sight so that they could then learn whatever it is about criminological procedure. And of course, in role-playing exercises, uh, exist in a corporate framework uh, a lot of the time. There our friend uh, Lehman Kessler of Ass Lovecraft fame, one of his acting gigs uh, was he would uh, uh, pose as a, a patient undergoing various emergencies and then uh, nursing trainees would then have to respond correctly to whatever it is, or there are other things where you, you play an irate customer and people right. have to uh, deal with that. And again, those are basically sort of scripted improv uh, situations. But again, the client has a lesson that they want to get across, uh, you know, how to deal with this type of patient, how to deal with this type of irate uh, customer. And here we would need to learn what the, the points were about criminological procedure. So, you know, if one of the lessons is uh, make sure that you have probable cause, then <laughs> we would then set about designing a scenario 
that hinged on the question of whether you had achieved the threshold of probable cause before moving forward to get a warrant. So that uh, unlike actual published gumshoe adventures, the thing where you go and talk to the judge and convince them to issue a warrant is a big part, if not the whole sort of climax, as you were, of the scenario. I do want to mention that like regular tabletop role-playing, we will have been working in the wake of pioneers of tabletop miniature true crime detecting because Francis Glessner Lee famously made the nutshell studies of unexplained death, which are dioramas of true crime scenes. And uh, there's a book about it that uh, has pictures of these dioramas. She did them in the, in the thirties and forties. So it's period appropriate for your trail of Cthulhu. Talk about your crossovers right there. And these were little dioramas where she would put the actual evidence that you needed to solve the crime. And the game was that a forensic scientist that she was trying to train would look into her little dollhouse room and have a, a 90 minutes to solve the crime based on the visual evidence that was available in the room. And so that's how you would teach blood spatter. It's how you teach uh, forensic reconstruction. It's how you teach all manner of things that she was kind of inventing in the real world at the same time, but created these minis as a, as a teaching tool for. And I suspect that one of the things that our putative criminal investigation role-playing game would have to involve is a substantial mapping component because that is crucial to solving the question is looking at spatial relationships and whether or not you, you would be able to do an abstract or a tactical version, depending on how you wanted to play or whether it would depend on positioning is I guess up to the Minnesota department of justice. But I do want to mention that this is another road to go down is that uh, th these are teaching tools. They're used as teaching tools in the thirties. They're used as teaching tools now. And this is another excellent way to do it. And it's uh, the role-playing component can come when you start saying, uh, which kind of starts anyway, where you're saying, how did this woman get into this room? Who would she have let into the room? Would she have trusted them? And these sorts of answering these questions are putting yourself into a role of a character. There are games, um, such as uh, I think it's Lovecraft Esk is a game where you wind up playing a victim collectively and you all then flip over and play the murderers and figure out uh, how you've sent this person off to, to the Lovecraftian abyss through your monstrousness. Uh, Bluebeard's Bride, of course, is sort of a true crime in uh, in Ovo. Uh, I think you could do another thing where rather than it being a criminological procedure in the sense of you're solving a crime, you're doing a role playing game in the sense of you're creating a crime and then. Once you created the crime, it might be the thing that the other half of the of, of the game group then solves that crime, or that you then flip over and play uh, the um, investigators, and you have to solve the crime that you've just created. And that, of course, reminds me that our uh, buddy uh, Nathan Paletta has a Columbo uh, role playing game that I don't know if it's out or not, but is going to be great because it's uh, freaking Nathan Paletta. The thing with the Columbo game is you think it's going to be out, but then there's just one, 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 last one last thing that he needs to do to fix it. Exactly. Yeah. Gumshoe envisions that, for example, you have the skill kinetics, uh, which like in, uh, esoteric is your blood spatter analysis tool. Um, but, uh, in this situation, that's up. And, and then it says, you know, kinetics so that you know that the victim was, uh, hit with a meat tenderizer while they were lying on the floor. Now, uh, this is actually a situation where you're kind of reversed in that the person does know kinetics. And so what you have to do is show them a blood spatter uh, as a diagram. And then they would go, okay, well, obviously, uh, okay, yeah, uh, meat tenderizer, they were lying on the floor. And then uh, build it up from uh, that. Another, of course, big part of criminal procedure is talking to people and getting the correct information out of them. And that's where, you know, they can hire Lehman to come in and pose as various uh, witnesses and suspects uh, and with the thing uh, scripted situation set up uh, almost with sort of a knowledge of a drama system in the way that you can get information out of different people by pushing their buttons differently is that they're given a script in which there is a particular way to get the correct information out of them. And it is the job of the uh, interrogator uh, to figure out uh, how to get their way in and get, uh, past that person. And then obviously that would involve a lot of knowledge uh, that you would be supplied, the, the client would supply information about, you know, the psychology of interrogation and interrogation techniques and which things work and which things don't. And that 
you know, depending on uh, what the setup was, that would be uh, part of it where you would, you know, the, the morning session would be you would look at, uh, at the crime scene diorama and then the afternoon session is you talk to the performers playing all of the non-player characters from which you have to get uh, correct information. And it's not just that all of them are, it's not a, just a, a murder mystery thing where uh, all of them could be the killer and you have to figure out what, but just, you know, can you get the salient facts from them instead of all the dumb things they want to tell you or in, right. instead of their misperceptions? <laughs> I like the, I like the idea that the killer, the, the, the witnesses, yeah, yeah, kill, but let me tell you about the flat earth. <laughs> <laughs> Don't um, believe NASA's lies. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard some footsteps or something. But, you know, let me let me tell you about um, uh, noatropics. <laughs> right. Well, also, you know, people, uh, one of the things we know from criminology is that witness testimony is terrible. Right. That uh, especially something dramatic and shocking that happens, uh, you can see something, lock it into your memory, or an interrogator can be the one who locks the false narrative into your memory, right? So that can also be part of the challenge is to make sure you don't lead the witness so much that they just agree with your suggestions that they give you and then become convinced that that's, uh, that that's true. Right. I mean, a, a, a pretty useful teaching aid or teaching methodology might be to go to cases that, you know, were wrongfully solved because the other guy confessed or something and you have the players have to not just sort of, Oh, the blood spatter means he was killed with a, a meat tenderizer, but, have to disregard the wrong or slanted or planted or misinterpreted evidence and come up with the actual answer because, Hey, guess what? All of your instincts and your professional courtesy are leading you one way, but guess what? The guilty guy is the other way. Yeah. So if our client is the innocence project, yeah, well, they have their own problems. They're out framing other people. <laughs> the, you're going to have to grapple with the fact that an astounding amount of what we think of as uh, settled forensic science that has been used to convict uh, dozens and dozens and hundreds of people is bunk. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's uh, you know, so much of it is just uh, based on uh, nothing, on the uh, initial assertions of uh, somebody very confident uh, in the 1930s. And, uh, you know, that a lot of people... Confident been... folk in the 1930s caused no problems, Robin, and I won't hear you traduce <laughs> that exactly. class of people. <laughs> yes. Well, thankfully now everything is evidence based. Right. Thankfully, no one is confident for we're not no reason. Spiraling back into any <laughs> historical analogs here. Um, well, I, I guess now that we're spiraling. Yes. Once you spiral. Yeah, we've we've given the clients their their fifteen minutes. Right. You got to lean in and on enjoy all the, the money ride. that they want to give. Exactly. Us. The, yeah. the next move is up to you, Governor Mark Dayton. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, in the meantime, before we get all that sweet Minnesota money, oh. uh, we're going to collect a little bit from this commercial and then so uh, meet you on the other side. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secret of Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide from Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that once more we stand in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send him back into history, to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And Patreon backer Rick Neal has another in the genre of carefully worded questions that's trying to sidestep the issue of Ken Height Time Assassin, as he asks, why did Time Incorporated 
need Casper Hauser dead. Casper Hauser, of course, is one of the famous um, mysterious historical figures. So uh, before we start messing with the time stream, perhaps we'll use your time machine, Ken, to go back uh, to May 26, 1828, and show up in Nuremberg just as Casper Hauser is. He's a young man, shows up looking somewhat uh, uh, dazed and lost, and he has a letter on him. And the letter, by an anonymous writer, as one would be given its content, says, I've kept this guy in a basement for his whole life. I've kept him in captivity in a house, and uh, I'm tired of doing that, though. So you, the state, should either make him a cavalryman, like his father, or hang him. You know, one or the other. Those those are the two options, apparently. If you're the anonymous letter writer who had some reason to keep Casper Hauser locked up in a basement. And in in Germany, those are pretty much your two fates. Yes. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, he shows up. He's been, according to the story, been kept a prisoner his whole life. Uh, And there are reasons to believe that. For example, although he can read, he has a very limited vocabulary. He talks in a sort of a a broken, uh, broken German, I guess. And uh, but of course, he's then they promptly imprison him as a vagabond. Clearly, you have no home since you just escaped your captivity that you spend in your whole life. So let's throw you in jail. <laughs> That's That'll learn him. Yeah. So this begins the uh, a four-year period in which uh, people were trying to figure out who Casper Hauser uh, was. And uh, uh, later on, uh, why they should tolerate him because people didn't really like Casper. Well, he was kind of a jerk. Um, he was a tourist attraction for a while. It's just part of the reason that they uh, liked him. And amongst the tourists that they attracted was uh, a British nobleman. And if you know anything about uh, dodgy Middle European history, you know that British noblemen are the stormy petrels of that. And that was the Earl of Stanhope. Uh, the Earl of Stanhope showed up and paid for a better treatment and had been moved to uh, Anspach from uh, the town of Nuremberg, which is where he was originally. Now, um, is he played by Jonathan Price? Uh, he may have been played by Jonathan Price, or he may have been played by Jason Isaacs. He may be that evil. Ah. Um, we don't know. But uh, Lord Stanhope, the fourth Earl of Stanhope, was also a secret agent for uh, the uh, British government and may have been closing off a loose end uh, because the rumor was that the foundling boy was the lost Prince of Baden in Germany and the lost Prince of Baden amongst other uh, disadvantages from the British perspective was the adopted grandson of Napoleon Bonaparte. And the last thing that they needed in 1828 uh, or really anywhere was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte stuff uh, showing up again. So uh, Stanhope oils himself into Casper uh, Hauser's um, uh, interest. He basically shows up in Nuremberg the same uh, year or the same month, even that Casper uh, Hauser uh, is attacked uh, mysteriously. Now, now he was uh, attacked a number of times. Yes. So the, was this attack number one, the forehead? The the forehead, the, the forehead attack. Forehead the, the forehead attack. Yes. Right. D- delivered by a hooded man, Casper said, who said that he would never leave Nuremberg alive. Exactly. And, and this was, of course, distinct from the uh, pistol accident uh, six months later, in which uh, was probably just gun mishandling. That was ju- that's just a standard pistol accident, one assumes. Right. But Caspar is starting to seem a little accident prone, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, speaking of harm coming to Caspar Hauser, finally, on the 14th of December in 1833, he shows up stabbed in the chest. And he's carrying a weird letter, uh, which a number of people say... This seems like the other weird letters written by Casper Hauser, and he dies three days later. And so the uh, premise then of Rick Neal's question is that I don't think, Ken, that you would have stabbed him, but you no. perhaps did not, did not intervene in rescuing him because there was some uh, grander purpose in which uh, turned out Casper Hauser was here for a good time, but not a long time. All right. Um, we have a couple of possibilities. Uh, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that one of the things that he had on him uh, when he was found was a pamphlet entitled The Art of Replacing Lost Time and Years Badly Spent. So I'm going to say keep uh, your head on a swivel because he may have been from the shadowy other time agency. And I want to just mention here what we know about Casper Hauser. Initials KH. Hands are soft, not good for actual work. Fondness for alcohol. 
great appetite for learning, was able to just drink up learning uh, super rapidly. Did not like the Earl of Stanhope. One thing after another after another. I'm going to say that maybe what happened is that two objects can't exist at the same time at the same place. My presence there did not cause the death of Casper Hauser, but mathematically made it inevitable. And and we, and we know he's the anti-Ken because he's right. Yeah, because he's because he's a right. Admittedly, he was kept in a in a cellar with nothing but a wooden horse to play with. So you know that's not quite the same thing. Right. But oddly enough, got his manuscripts in. Right. Yeah. Because, because, they, because well, first of, of all, they were much shorter. In fairness, yeah, they were bad and, and they yeah, were badly so, written. Yeah, Anybody take, take can your pick, man. Uh, bad stuff that makes people think maybe you're the Prince of Baden or Nice Black Agents. Those are your choices. There is, there is no middle ground. <laughs> this press conference is over. Um, but no, the, uh, that I think is what's going on. Uh, other people have, of course, said, oh, Casper Hauser had perfect night vision. Therefore, he was a tulpa or therefore he was a reptoid. Lots of people have perfect night vision. I'm sure that my night vision would be fine if I hadn't ruined it by looking at things at night. He also responded to homeopathy in a way that m- normal people didn't and could detect magnets. He was experimented on uh, for one uh, period uh, by a homeopathic uh, scientist named Daumer, um, uh, which is a whole different weird thing going on. When you're talking about your your name over overlapping, your guy named Dahmer right. who is su- super into a young boy he found in a park is is maybe not what you want and invites him home to look at his magnet exactly um but uh but this guy says that the the uh the casper hauser responded to magnets and had all manner of odic force about him so we can't rule out tulpas um maybe it's not parallel maybe it's a tulpa maybe someone wished a their own ken hide into being and just did it really badly and maybe he was uh just a little kid from the Tyrol who was smart enough to realize that pretending to be an amnesiac prince was better than pretending to be a runaway from the Tyrol because when they did dna testing on him it turned out he's just some little austrian kid right so he's a he's a time revenant then he's a an emanation, uh, a byproduct of like a backfire in the in the time machine, and uh, or a a kenimation, as it were. So, what were you doing in Nuremberg in 1828 that uh, accidentally caused Caspar Hauser to temporarily exist until history uh, wrote him out with his stab to the chest that might have been self-inflicted? Well, Robin, since you ask, I was in Nuremberg in uh, spring of 1828 for the 300th anniversary of Durer's death, which was celebrated in Nuremberg uh, with a uh, performance of concerts, a book fair, art exhibits, and the laying of a memorial uh, foundation stone for a statue of Durer into which were placed um, copies of uh, books about Durer, uh, celebratory Bavarian coins, and other artifacts. And it is one of those other artifacts that I was there to examine and perhaps abstract if it were, in fact, a uh, currently unknown or lost Durer uh, piece that had been uh, destroyed in the World War II bombing of Nuremberg. Right. So this is one of those uh, things where you're traveling along in the time machine. You have a, a routine mission. Yes. And then you you hit a chrono anomaly, and that generates the anti-can, Casper Hauser. And then that creates all sorts of situations where you have to... And presumably, there's three different times when you're trying to arrange to deal with him. Uh, first time is the... Cut on the forehead. So were you the hooded man? Uh, no, that was the Earl of Stanhope. He just ruined okay. it because he was British. He was trying to kill him, but he just did it badly. And the, uh, the pistol accident then? That's a pistol Is accident. That- That's just letting a kid play around with a gun. He's the anti-Ken, remember? Right. And then the last time, I guess you're just there as a, as an observer to make sure that the anti-Ken realizes that he can never become the Ken, that that is beyond his Ken. As it were. And therefore, he stabs himself and has this badly written letter, which he, you know, thinks is a new role-playing game, but in fact, it's just a badly written letter. And that's, that's the end of Casper Hauser. That is the end of Casper Hauser. Um, the uh, tie off is that in uh, the summer of 1833, he was uh, killed in December of 1833, the summer of 1833. I was also in Nuremberg because uh, King Ludwig the first was there for uh, more Durer festivities, uh, which included yet more, 
further exhibitions of Durer artifacts, including an engraving tool that had been found in Durer's house. And whether or not this engraving tool was the sort of uh, focus of the time anomaly, because after all, it's Durer. We're not talking about some Jamoke. Uh, and that right. engraving tool is pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, hefty mojo. If you want to, if you want to incise a fissure in time, an engraving tool is a good way to do it. It's a good way to do it. So the possibility of finding that, plus, of course, uh, they had Nuremberg all decked out like it was 300 years ago, which probably has its own little time ripples. So between the 1828 ceremony and the 1833 ceremony, which exactly brackets almost, uh, Casper Hauser's life, uh, or career, I guess, um, that's when I'm there. So I, th- I think that there is either a Tulpa or an Antiken or an Antiken who is also a Tulpa. Right. And any of those cases, you have to stick around and make sure that they uh, generally those work their way out of the time stream. Right. But you just I have to sort of. This is the most famous example of it being tied off. Exactly. Right. Uh, well, uh, having tied off Casper Hauser, I think it's time for us to tie off this very podcast. But we'll be uh, back with uh, Voices Hori from Travel next week. Next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep us from going the way of the Kong Mountains alongside such patrons as... Noel Warford. Pedro Garcia. Sam Wise-Kreider. Stephen Hamm. And Todd W. Olson. Snag Canon Robin Apparel and other Air Udite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.